Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest foxcasting either side of the breach. This evening, we have yet another tale of gremlins and their wily ways. You might think that a gremlin would be easy to outsmart, but even the Governor General's finest agents sometimes have trouble against Ma Tucket and her bushwhackers. I hope you enjoy The Spoon is Mightier, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Jeremiah's Spoon Shop. Jeremiah's Spoon Shop sells spoons. None of these fancy silver spoons neither. Just good old-fashioned wooden spoons. They may not be pretty, but they're useful. You can stir a pot of gator stew, fight off an assailant, or even play them like a musical instrument if you got two. Forks are alright, but when you need a spoon, nothing else will do. The Spoon is Mightier Peregrine Renfield was not impressed. He had anticipated a challenge when he'd heard how much the Governor-General was willing to pay him for his time, but it turned out to be a simple milk run. Any bourbon-soaked cowhand with a gun could babysit a wagon, and he had told the Governor as much. This one was loaded down with gold ore and soul stones from the new Bright Hill Mine, the Governor had confided. Renfield shrugged. He'd seen gold ore before, and he had no use for soul stones. Trade in that currency was forbidden back home in London. The guard reports were always the same, the governor had continued. They were waylaid and outfoxed by a gang of raiders, small, masked, and as slippery as greased weasels, and they were coming from the depths of the bayou. Renfield had yawned and examined his perfect nails. In the end, the governor had told him to name his price, and he had. A 5% share of all profits of the Bright Hill Mine to be deposited in a Malifaux bank account in Renfield's name, of which Renfield was the sole operator. In return, the Governor-General wanted the band of raiders tracked, eliminated, and as much of the stolen wealth recovered as possible. This seemed doable, and they'd finally shaken hands and accord reached. The Governor had poured out an excellent sherry and apologized that they could not have retired to more civilized surroundings. But it seemed that the Premier Gentleman's Club, the Grey Lord, had very recently undergone some unexpected renovations, and his people were still scouting for an alternative venue. Renfield had finished his sherry, bid the governor a good evening, and taken the first stagecoach south out of the city. He had reached the Bright Hill mining community early the following morning. The mining town had been every bit as squalid as he had expected, filled to the brim with rough-handed oafs who spent their days sweating in a hole and the nights drinking rot-gut whiskey and losing at cards. Renfield was chiefly to blame for the last one, his eidetic memory allowed him to monitor the cards closely, and he could guess with great accuracy the probability of his opponents being able to field a better hand than he. He had been nine days in that miserable rocky pimple, waiting on the next gold wagon to leave for the city. The wagons took twelve hours to get back to the city, and Renfield suspected that the raiders were operating from a base very close to the edge of the bayou. They had to be nearby, because all the guard reports described them as being on foot and now he was sitting on the forward bench of an iron wagon threading its way through thin wiry scrub and soft marshy ground, 
skirting the edge of the heavier swampland and making as close as a beeline towards Malifaux as possible. Nine days of debauchery and boredom, he mused. Of course, while it had been a trial for him, Mr. O'Duggan had loved it. He regarded his sleeping companion at the far end of the bench. Dougie O'Duggan, a stage name if ever he'd heard one. When they had first met, O'Duggan had been an unsuccessful prizefighter. To put things in context, he was only unsuccessful in the respect of making money, which was because he never lost a fight. He was a terrifying individual and displayed genuine relish while in the act of beating his fellow man. His reputation was such that many promoters avoided him entirely for fear of their own fighters being hospitalized or worse. When O'Duggan could get a fight, he often had to accept a smaller purse than the man he would inevitably beat just to get things off the ground. He had begun fighting two men at once, then three, then five, just to keep things interesting. Renfield suspected that O'Duggan would have fought the men for free if he'd been asked to. Certainly the retainer that he paid the man was pitiful for the services he provided, but O'Duggan had never once grumbled about his salary. He seemed to regard his talent for causing injury as a labour of love. Not that Renfield used him like a common thug, that would have been beneath him. Instead, he used O'Duggan primarily as insurance. One look at that battered and grinning visage, hammered by a hundred thousand fists to little effect, was usually enough to slide most disgruntled gamblers back onto their bar stools. It wasn't that he was especially large, although his wiry body was all tendons, muscle, and knuckles, but there was a light in his eyes that was reserved for only the most savage of beasts. Another of O'Duggan's unnerving parlor tricks was the five for one. He would offer this trade to any opponent that was brave or drunk enough to stay standing when the others had slunk back to their chairs. The theme was simple. O'Duggan would stand his ground, hands at his sides, and allow his opponent to land five blows delivered in any way they desired, after which he would in return throw one retaliatory punch. Renfield had once seen an enterprising saloon brawler break five chairs in succession over O'Duggan's head while he stood there as patient as Job. After the fifth chair... O'Duggan picked a splinter out of his thinning hair and then floored the other man with a short spring-loaded uppercut that would have killed a horse. He was snoring now, hanging over the side of the wagon as it lurched this way and that. He had tied his belt around his middle and lashed himself to the back of the seat to prevent falling off. Renfield remembered approaching the bare-knuckled boxer on the day he'd first hired him. It had been in Dublin, where O'Duggan had been born, and he had just knocked out five other men for less money than Renfield had spent on his breakfast coffee. When O'Duggan asked why he should work for Renfield when he had a paying career already, Renfield had answered that he'd never have to ask for a fight again, and that had been that. That had always been Renfield's skill, to see right to the heart of a man and understand what motivated him. He'd seen O'Duggan just wanted to fight, like he'd seen the governor's anxiety at his inability to stop the raiders. The percentage of that mine he had negotiated would produce a colossal amount of money, but the governor had agreed to it in order to stop the hemorrhaging of its produce. All in all, not a bad profit for a day's work. Once he dealt with the raiders, of course. Martucket watched the distant wagon through her big eye. She knew fine well it was called a telescope, 
but she liked to pander to local customs of shirking any label that had a science whiff about it. Besides, it worked just as well no matter what it was called. There they is, she commented to the small gathering of green females around her. Couple of new fellows on the wagon, too. This instigated some interest among the bushwhackers, and they began giggling and jostling. Sail down thar, Martucket warned, keeping her eye on the wagon as it wound along the edge of their territory. We got work to do. Leave the moonin' and simperin' to Trixabel. The bushwhackers settled some, but they were still grinning and nudging one another behind Mars' back. One of the figures on the wagon's bench seat was flopping back and forward as limp as a club gator. She focused the big eye in tighter and saw heavy knuckled hands and an almost completely flat nose. He looked like a tough cookie. She moved on to the other new arrival, pompous-looking fella. Slick hair, neatly parted, spotless collar, clean hands. Looked like a city gent. She'd seen his type before. Money and breeding made them arrogant. Well, Ma had a cure for that. Three of them looks like, she said. I recognize the driver, but the other two I ain't seen before. What's the word, Ma? said one of the bushwhackers. Ma Tuckett sat back on her haunches, closed the big eye, tipped back her enormous hat, and spat contemplatively into the distance. We play this one nice and cool, she said. First I want them separated. Send a signal out to Trixabel. Sure to be pretty much in the middle of their route. The bushwhacker went to a small fire near the back of their campsite and threw a handful of damp moss onto the flames. Immediately, a dense grey smoke swirled into the air, which the bushwhacker sliced into sections with a blanket. Go wake up the little lass, added Ma. I got a job for her. Renfield checked his timepiece. They were on schedule and so far not the slightest hint of trouble. He'd been checking periodically for pursuers, even though there were no reports of the bandits being mounted or using wagons, and had instructed the driver to keep out of the denser areas around the edge of the bayou. If there were any ambushes up ahead, they'd see them long before they could be sprung, and there was no road out here to be blocked. He checked his pistol, too. Renfield had paid for the weapon to be built from scratch at considerable expense to allow the weapon to utilize 4570 government rifle cartridges. The kick was substantial, but he found the penetration of the heavier rifle cartridge to be far superior to a conventional 45 revolver. He'd used it a dozen times since he'd had it made in Wyoming, and every one of the men he'd shot went down and stayed down. Renfield didn't like loose ends. He settled the revolver back into his holster and reached over to Waco Duggan up. He'd slept long enough, and they were coming into the area where the bandits were most active, if the nervy, waxy sheen of the driver was anything to go by. However, O'Duggan had disappeared. In his place was a small, green, and exceptionally buxom woman clinging to the side of the wagon. She was wearing tight denim shorts and a halter top, and a large Stetson hat. In her hand was a sharp knife. Howdy, handsome, she giggled, and vanished over the side of the wagon. Renfield took a moment to compute this. He was quite sure he had definitely seen that. The afterimage of the green woman's bouncing bosom stayed with him for some time. It was only as he recalled the bizarre sight that it began to take shape. The little woman had been bright green and sharp-featured with long blade-like ears. A bayou gremlin. 
she had been holding a knife. O'Dogan had been secured to the wagon seat by his belt. O'Dogan and his belt were both now missing. He twisted around in his seat and saw O'Dogan lying spread eagle on the ground fifty yards back and receding further with every second. Stop the wagon, Renfield called. Hell with that, mister, said the driver, hunching forward and cracking the reins. You can go back and get him if you like, but we're right in the middle of bandit country here, and I ain't stopping till Malifaux. What? Don't be absurd, said Renfield. Stop the wagon this instant. You want off, there's a the ground right there, said the driver, nodding over the side of the wagon and lashing the horses faster still. Renfield grabbed the man's wrists, trying to rein them in. The driver fought back. They struggled, both men grunting with the effort of overpowering the other. Renfield got one foot up on the kickboard and hauled back with all his strength. Incredibly, the horse reins whipped back in his face. He'd completely ripped them off the bridles. Only he hadn't. Two more gremlins had appeared on the backs of the racing horses, peering back over their shoulders and grinning at him. They too had sharp little knives. They'd come out of nowhere, climbed onto the horses and cut through the reins. They gripped the horse bridles and twisted the animals' heads to the side, causing them to swerve off course and head straight into the bayou. Renfield went for his revolver, but the horses had already reached the thick brush. Branches swatted him from both sides as the wagon cannoned into the tangled, wiry vegetation. Only the whooping gremlins were immune, hunched down against the horses' necks. They still held the bridles tight in their little fists, holding the runaway wagon's course. Branches smacked Renfield's face, his shoulders, his stomach, his knees, his shins... He folded one arm over his face, swearing loudly over the cacophony of cracks and crunches the wagon made as it bulldozed through the brush, trying to aim his pistol at the stowaways. The driver was suddenly struck in the middle by a particularly thick and stubborn branch. He was yanked backwards over the roof and left behind, hanging from the tree, face purple, mouth puckered in evident pain. Damn you, you blasted little... Ah! Renfield's exclamation was cut off when a hard knot cracked him across the knuckles. His pistol bounced once on the wagon roof and was gone. He barely had time to register this before a branch as thick as his wrist caught him on the temple with a resounding crack. Everything went black. O'Duggan awoke slowly, with an uncommonly sore head. That normally signified he'd been drinking the night before, or fighting, or both. One eye finally responded to his brain's urging to open, and a greenish-brown blur came into view. This didn't help his situation much, so he persuaded the other eye to open. He was laying in thick grass, surrounded by low, gnarly bushes. Off to one side was the overgrown mossy tangle of the bayou, to the other, the grass petered out to distant brown rock. He spat out an insect and slowly sat upright, feeling like he'd been in one heck of a fight. It took a few seconds for his memory to start ticking over. They'd been in Bright Hill. Then they'd got on the wagon. He'd started nodding off. He'd had the idea of tying himself to the bench seat. Then, well, that was it. That was the last thing he could remember other than a murky dream about being on a train up in the hills and coming around a bend to find the track stopped dead in the sheer face of a mountain. And now he was here, sitting in the grass in the middle of nowhere. 
Howdy, mister, said a high piping voice. He craned around. He was being watched by a small child. A small green child. Morning to you, he replied automatically. He was still too concussed to react, but he supposed this was one of the bayou gremlins they'd been warned about. She was an awful lot smaller than he'd expected, probably no higher than his hip, and she was wearing a filthy old sackcloth dress and a straw hat that looked like it had been partially eaten. She was also holding a battered old teddy bear and an enormous wooden spoon, which was taller than she was by a considerable margin. O'Duggan began to question whether she was really there at all, or if his head had taken a harder knock than he thought. Nah, the little gremlin said, shaking her head. Gold pigtails slapped back and forth. It ain't morning. No? What time is it then? he asked, gently touching his head and finding an egg-sized lump in his hair. It's dolly-making time, the child said, seesawing back and forth on her little bare feet. O'Duggan managed to grin at this. Sweetheart, you've picked a bad time to wonk. O'Duggan blinked. Something had just happened to cause white pain to explode through his skull, but he wasn't entirely sure what. Ugh, he said. It's dolly-making time, the child said again firmly. Listen, darling, I don't whap. O'Duggan's vision swam. Had, had she just cracked him over the head with that huge spoon? Twice. Did you whap? Dolly making time. Dolly making time. The gremlin child said again forcefully. Are you insane? O'Duggan protested, gripping his head with both hands. Will you stop with the wonk? Dolly-making time! Dolly-making time! The green demon child was chanting. O'Duggan had never raised a hand against a child in his life, and he wasn't about to start now. But he reeled to his feet, one hand still protectively wrapped around his throbbing head, the other grasping for the huge spoon. Quit it, he was shouting. Quit it, you little devil! Give me that ow! Whop! Whap! Wonk! No matter how many times he lunged for it, the child was quicker. The brown spoon struck like a snake, always snapping back out of reach to evade his grasping fingers. Every strike against his skull travelled down to his feet, and then back up his spine again to give his already tender brain a kick in the pants. Whap! Walk! Dolly-making time! Dolly-making time! The gremlin infant was as stubborn as only a child could be punctuating every insistence with another astonishingly hard crack on the head. Whack! 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 O'Duggan had been fighting since he was born, and he'd fought a lot of very tough men and taken some horrendous beatings in his time, but none of them compared to the blazing agony in his head being caused by this demented, spoon-wielding gremlin child from hell. You little monster! he hollered, staggering. I'll snap you in two, I'll... Ah! Whop! Whack! Wham! Whack! Whack! The bayou rang with sharp reports, and a shrill child's voice, echoing almost all the way back to Bright Hill. Dolly making time!
Renfield was awake, slouched motionless and feigning unconsciousness, but listening intently to the sounds around him. He could hear hushed female voices away off to his right, could smell the smoke of a fire somewhere nearby. Now and again there was a tinkle of tin or the scrape of a spoon. It sounded like he'd been brought into the bandit camp. He tensed himself for flight, took a secret breath and leapt to his feet. Except he didn't. The chains and manacles around his wrists, ankles and neck brought him up short with a loud jangle and he fell over onto his back like some kind of turtle, unable to stand more than halfway upright. He hadn't realized he was manacled and rolled around in an undignified manner while the gremlins crowded around the campfire laughed. It was almost night. How long had he been out? He's up, one of them said. About time too, lazy lump, said another. Their voices were high and lilting, even for beings of such diminished stature, and Renfield realized belatedly that they were all female. It was easy to miss such a detail when they were all wearing filthy travel-stained clothing and were weighed down with a profusion of knives, bows, quivers, pistols, and ammunition bandoliers. One of the gremlins detached herself from the campfire ring and wandered over. Renfield took note of her enormous hat, assuming it was some sort of badge of office. She looked older than the others, and her fleshy, well-fed appearance suggested a certain privileged status. Evening, she said. You back in the land of the living at last? Thought you was dead for a while there. Renfield said nothing, but could feel something sticky all down one side of his face, no doubt blood. His head ached abominably. I reckon the governor must be getting pretty desperate to pay a fellow like you to watch a wagon, she said. When he didn't respond, she grinned at him. Cat got your tongue? Renfield looked down at the manacles around his wrists. They were rusty, but the iron was very thick, and after a few experimental twists, much too tight for him to squeeze his hands out of, they'd clearly been designed for someone much smaller. Sorry about that, the gremlin lady said. We don't got but one size, and I figured a resourceful fellow like yourself would know how to get out of ropes easy enough. Renfield did indeed know how to handle ropes. He had been a fan of parlor tricks in his youth, and as well as card games, had studied the art of escapology avidly. He was able to dislocate fingers in both hands to squeeze them through narrow apertures, an ability that had saved his bacon more than once, but that wouldn't help him get out of those manacles. They were so tight around his wrists that there was no play in them at all. The gremlin lady hauled over a crude three-legged stool and sat down in front of him. Name's Ma Tucket, she said, and these here's the Bayou Bushwhackers. The bushwhackers giggled and waved. A heart-shaped bottom in denim shorts suddenly hove into view. The huge bosomed female gremlin from the wagon undulated past, grinning at him. Howdy, sugar, she said. He noticed his pistol stuck into the waistband of her shorts. I like your gun. That's Trixabelle, Ma Tucket said. But don't let them presumes fool you. She'd skin you alive and make a pot of soup with the rest before you realized you were staring. What do you want? Renfield finally croaked. His throat was very dry. We was going to ask you the same thing, fella, said Ma. What you doing with our gold? 
Your gold, Renfield repeated. Did you say your gold? Shrat, Ma nodded. Our land, our gold. Suddenly things clicked into place. They built the mine on your territory, he said. Ma shrugged. Well, near enough is don't make no never mind. Way we figure is, the Governor General's claim stops at the city border. So you've just been taking back what's yours, is that right? Renfield asked. Heck nah, Martucket laughed. We've been stealing it. The other by bushwhackers joined in the snickering. But why? Because we's gremlins, Martucket said. Because it bugs the heck out of the governor. Because it's fun. Don't need no why when you live on the bayou. How did you get on the wagon, he asked suddenly, remembering how Trixiebel had appeared out of nowhere, as had the two bushwhackers that had cut the reins and commandeered the horses. That be telling, Ma said, winking slowly. Come to think of it, how did you know how to find us at all, Renfield asked. Ma Tucket just grinned at him. Renfield thought hard. They'd been nine days in that mine slum, then left early on the tenth morning. They'd only been on the road for three or four hours before they were ambushed. It just wasn't physically possible for someone to overtake them on foot from the minehead, and there were no telegraph wires up there. A signal, he said. You had a scout watching the mine, and they sent up some sort of signal to warn you when we were leaving. Martucket looked over her shoulder at the listening bushwhackers. Get this one, she said. But that doesn't explain how you could catch the wagon, Renfield was thinking aloud. There was enough open ground that I'd have seen you coming. His eyes roved around the campsite and settled on heavy mats woven from dried grass and threaded twisted gorse bush that were scattered around behind the bushwhackers. You hid, he said, realization dawning. You spaced yourselves out in the grass where the wagon came through and you hid under those mats. When we were close enough for you to see our route, you sneaked into position and just let us go right by. As soon as we'd passed, you popped up and climbed the luggage net. That's how you've been catching all the wagons. Camouflage. He's a smart one, this fella, Martucket said. I'm observant, Renfield said a touch pompously. It's all a matter of reading your opponent. Reading your opponent, huh, Ma said. You can read me pretty good, too. Renfield allowed himself a smile. Like a book, my dear. Martucket cackled and slapped her knee. Reckon you could. A thought seemed to occur to her, and she shuffled closer on her stool. I'll tell you what, smart fella. How about we have a little competition? Testing powers of observation. You win, I give you this. She held up a small iron key on a length of string. Renfield was careful to keep his expression neutral. A match of wits against this bumpkin. Was she serious? Continue, he said. Ma slapped her palms together in excitement and hurried away. She came back seconds later with two small wicker baskets, each about a foot tall with a wide mouth. Here's how we play, she said. I put the key in one basket, and in the other, I put this. She held up a small emerald green snake. What is that? Renfield asked nervously. Oh, nothing but a itty-bitty swamp viper, she said. This is just a baby, so it won't kill you none, but you get bitten, you'll be sick as a dog for a couple days. 
Renfield wasn't so sure about this, but it wasn't like he had a whole lot of alternatives. And what's the test? I tell you something about me, and you use your powers of observation to tell if I was lying or not. Renfield looked at the grubby old gremlin, her grinning face full of mischief. The way he figured it, he had at least a 50-50 chance. Maybe better if she was obvious. Agreed, he said. Ma whooped with glee and slapped her knee again. She turned her back as she deposited the key and baby snake into their respective pots, then turned back around and placed them both on the ground in front of him with an easy reach. As the bushwhackers gathered around with interest to watch, Ma leaned forward and pointed to the basket on his left. Truth, she said, then pointed to the basket on the right. Lie. Renfield nodded. Understood. Okay, smart fella, Ma Tuckett said, composing her face. Truth or lie? I once found a freshwater clam in the bayou, and it had a pearl in it the size of a silver dollar. Renfield watched her face closely, but her previously animated face had suddenly become completely blank. Even the bushwhackers had gone quiet, although they still grinned. He looked down at the two baskets, then back at her face. No change. She was inscrutable. Frowning, he looked at the baskets again. He supposed it was possible, but it seemed unlikely. He reached into the lie basket and closed his fingers around the key. Except the key squirmed and bit him on the thumb. Ow! he exclaimed, yanking his hand back. Uh-oh, chuckled Martucket as the assembled bushwhackers exploded with merriment. Guess maybe I ain't so easy to read after all, huh? Again, Renfield said, rubbing his thumb, which was already discolored and starting to swell. Ma shrugged, turned her back with the two baskets, rummaged and replaced them. Okay, she said and that same eerie blank expression dropped over her face like a curtain. Truth or lie? I got me a bayou gator I done trained myself that can deal cards. Renfield pulled a face at the absurd falsehood and thrust his hand straight into the lie basket. Ah! he cried, yanking back his stung hand again. There were two neat little holes in the back of his palm. Guess you ain't so smart after all, mister. Ma said while the others laughed even more uproariously. You wail on a gator long enough with a spoon, it'll do just about anything. Again, Renfield said hoarsely, although the throbbing in his hand had now reached his elbow and he was beginning to feel lightheaded. Ma took the baskets away again, rustled with them, and put them back down in front of him. Renfield stared at them with distrust while an unpleasant nausea built in his stomach. He belched. You don't look so good, mister, Ma Tuckett said. Maybe you ought to quit while you're ahead. Again, Renfield grunted, blinking to cure sudden double vision. As you like, she said and leaned closer. Truth or lie? I got me an uncle in the bayou who don't eat nothing but hot peppers, and he can light his pipe with fire out of his butt. Renfield paused, 
hoping that the old gremlin would crack. Surely such a ridiculous claim couldn't be true. Could it? He stared hopefully at the assembled bushwhackers, but there was no indication which way he should go. It had to be a lie, but... With a groan, he plunged his swollen hand into the truth basket. Ah! He jerked back clumsily, knocking over the basket. A small green shape slithered out and vanished in the long grass. The groaning laughter washed over him and he realized he was keeling over to one side. His sense of balance was going. As he hit the ground, his stomach rolled dangerously. A shrill voice cut through the distortion. You sure called that fella's bluff, Ma. Bluff nothing, snorted Ma Tucket. I didn't put no key in there. I put two snakes in. That boy dumb as a fence post. The laughter washed over him again. The Governor-General was disturbed by a knock at his door. Come, he barked. A guild captain put his head around the door. Thought he'd want to know, sir. They're back. About time, the Governor grunted, getting to his feet. The delivery is already a day overdue. As soon as he got down to the courtyard, he knew something had gone terribly wrong. Renfield and O'Duggan were standing in the middle of the yard, both of them incredibly filthy and barefoot. Renfield had vomit all down the front of his tunic and looked as green as a parrot. He was muttering something with a frown of confusion on his face. In both baskets, snakes, snakes in both baskets, he was mumbling. At his shoulder, O'Duggan was standing with a dreamy smile on his face. Most of his teeth were missing and his eyes seemed to be moving in different orbits. The front of his shirt was in tatters, and as the governor stared, he held up a string of little cloth figurines cut out of his shirt fabric. I made dollies, he said. That brings us to the end of another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for more Tales of Malibu.